Good morning. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, we come to you knowing that you are our Redeemer, our refuge, gracious and merciful God. And Father, I pray that as your word is proclaimed this morning, I pray that you would create and sustain, nourish and strengthen faith in the hearts of your people that we might live fruitful lives to the glory of Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. Lord willing, we'll return to Genesis in uh, September, but uh, I've got a couple, couple sermons this week and next that I want to work through, and this particular sermon is titled, Holy Zeal, what, what the Bible teaches about passion for God. Every now and then, you might describe a faithful Christian by saying that he or she is on fire, on fire, boiling hot, consuming devotion, full of ardor and fervor, full-throttled zeal. Does that, does that describe you? The lukewarm Laodiceans were not burning hot with heartfelt devotion to the Lord. They were smug and self-satisfied in their outward prosperity, and they were tragically out of touch with their spiritual poverty. They were wretched branches that were disconnected from the life-giving vine. Therefore, Jesus advised them to make a course correction. Jesus said, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent, Revelation 3.19. The only good way forward for calloused and cold-hearted churchgoers is to pursue repentance with intensity. No half measures, no lip service, but with zeal to be restored to fellowship with Christ. And then, once fellowship has been restored and devotion has been reignited, then zeal should characterize the entire course of your walk with God. As Romans 12:11 says, do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. Of course, it should be noted that our fervency, our zeal, our boiling hot devotion must be oriented to Jesus. Many people have misguided zeal, zeal that is, ordered to, that is oriented to something or someone other than Jesus. And this means that the mere, the mere presence of zeal, even the mere presence of religious zeal, proves nothing one way or the other about whether a person actually is walking rightly with the Lord. That's why I titled this sermon, Holy Zeal, and not just Zeal because I want our zeal to be holy and set apart and useful to the Lord. So I'm going to walk through this sermon in three, three parts. First, we'll take some time to consider unholy zeal, and then after that, we will ponder God's zeal, and then finally, after that, we'll, we'll consider what it means for us to have holy and godly zeal. So what does the Bible say about unholy zeal? I'm going to be all over the Bible this morning. There's a couple times in the sermon where I'll ask you to turn 
to a particular passage because I'm going to give it a little bit more attention. But uh, just just hang on for the ride here. Um, what does the Bible say about unholy zeal? Well, it says a lot. God is, God is not impressed with the religious zeal of ignorant people. God is not impressed with the religious zeal of unbelievers, of heretics, of false teachers, or members of cults. The Pharisees exhibited great zeal in their mission for God's name. <laughs> but all they succeeded at doing was expanding the reach of hell. Jesus said in Matthew 23:15, "Woe to you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land." Boy, there's there's zeal. There's devotion. You travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. One such Pharisee was named Paul. Paul was zealous for the Hebrew religion. He wrote of his pre-Christian life in Galatians 1.14, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. And Paul expressed his zeal by persecuting the church. And Paul was not your run-of-the-mill persecutor either. He said in Galatians 1.13, I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. Paul had an intense religious zeal that put him on a collision course with the living God. In due course, Paul, the zealous Pharisee, became Paul, the faithful Christian apostle, and he had this to say about his fellow Israelites who refused to believe the gospel. In Romans 10, verses 1 through 3, he said, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness, listen now, I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they do not submit to God's righteousness. These Israelites had a zeal for God, but it was a misguided zeal. In their zeal, they attempted to secure God's favor by building up a resume of their own righteousness, of their own good deeds. But, they only, but that only succeeded at entrenching them in rebellion against God. They did not submit to God's righteousness. The Bible is clear. No one is righteous, not even one. No one understands. No one seeks for God, Romans 3, 10, and 11. All the religious zeal in the world won't make an unrighteous person righteous. All the rules and rituals, all the prayers and principles of conduct, all the church programs and volunteer activities won't render you righteous in the court of God's justice. Zeal for God is no substitute for submission to God. And submission to God means submission to God's righteousness. God clothes you in the righteousness of of his son, of his very own righteousness. He clothes you in righteousness if you trust in his dear son. And everyone who doesn't believe remains naked and ashamed regardless of how much zeal you can muster up. Misguided, so, so, so misguided religious zeal is a common form of unholy zeal. Another form of unholy zeal is being passionate about yourself. 
In fact, it's interesting. The Greek word that is translated zeal is sometimes translated jealousy. And this makes sense because zeal and jealousy, those two English words, both suggest intensity of feeling. And the question, the critical question, is whether that intense devotion is directed to a worthy or unworthy end. So listen to these passages that use, that use this word that's sometimes translated zeal, but here it's translated jealousy. Romans 13, 13. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. 1 Corinthians 3.3. 3. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving in only a human way? And then from James chapter 3, verses 14 to 16, but if you have, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts. Do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. So zeal or jealousy is good when it is directed to a worthy end, but they are bad when they are directed to an unworthy end. And these three passages that I just read connect jealousy with quarreling, strife, and selfish ambition. And the point is obvious. Unholy zeal is characterized by getting passionate about all the wrong things. People are zealous or jealous for their own honor. They want to get their own way. They want their own opinions and preferences to hold sway. They want to hold power over others for selfish reasons. They want their clique or faction or interest group to dominate the whole congregation. They are devoted to personalities. They deploy underhanded and fleshly tactics in order to pursue their own agenda. Holy zeal or holy jealousy would mean to be passionate for the best things for the best reasons. The Apostle Paul expressed holy jealousy when he said to the Corinthians, for I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. 2 Corinthians 11.2. Paul was passionately devoted to the spiritual purity and fidelity of Christ's church. In contrast, many people are passionately devoted to their own preferred sideshow, which features themselves and their trusted allies. Such unholy, or unho such unholy zeal or unholy jealousy means being passionately devoted to inferior things for impure motives. And Diotrephes is a great example of this in 3 John verses 9 and 10. Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, there's the root of, of his problem, he's passionate about himself. Okay? He likes to put himself first, and so he does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us, and not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Here's a man, Diotrephes, who is passionate about himself, and he demands loyalty to himself. And so he opposes other 
He opposes faithful ministers of the gospel. He slanders faithful ministers of the gospel. He refuses to show hospitality to faithful brothers. And he even kicks people out of his church who want to show hospitality to faithful brothers. Sometimes diatrophies are right in the middle of the church, calling the shots. Pay attention. My question is, are you passionately devoted to the best things for the best reasons, or are you passionately devoted to the wrong things for all the wrong reasons? Okay, that's our consideration of unholy zeal. Now let's talk about godly zeal. We don't just, we don't just transition from unholy zeal to holy zeal. That, don't, that transition takes place because we come face to face with God's zeal. Okay? So God has unfathomable zeal for the infinite glory and worth of His holy name. All glory, laud, and honor rightly belong to Him as the sovereign creator. And when we give glory, laud, and honor to man-made idols, His holy jealousy is inflamed, as He told us, in the Ten Commandments, Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 to 6. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Not because he is needy and insecure, but because he is the infinitely majestic king, an infinitely valuable redeemer. The sovereign Lord will receive exclusive worship from human beings. Or if they, refu- if they refuse, then they will receive his wrath. God is jealous over his own incomparable worth. He alone is worthy, and everything else is like a tiny drop in the bucket. And sanity means thinking and operating accordingly. Now, there's a well-known passage in Isaiah that shows us that God has a firm resolve and an unwavering commitment to pursue his own perfect plan. Isaiah chapter 8 concludes with the tragic reality of a sin-sick world. Distress, hunger, rage, the gloom of anguish, and thick darkness. But as you turn from chapter 8 to chapter 9, there's a great reversal. God's grace descends upon the world. Light shines in the darkness. Gladness is given in the place of gloom. A rich harvest bursts forth to answer the hunger. And lasting peace is established as oppression and hostility are taken away. And then comes the familiar words that this great reversal is taking place through God's appointed king. It says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, 
mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. What was promised through the prophet Isaiah began to be fulfilled when the word became flesh, when the true light came into the world, and when Christ the Lord was born in Bethlehem. Now, question, what is the driving force behind the fulfillment of God's promise to give his son for the salvation of this sin-sick world. Well, when I just read Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, I intentionally did not read the final phrase in verse 7 because I wanted to say it now. After all that Yahweh promised to do to bring forth light and salvation and righteousness and peace through his appointed king, we read these words. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Divine zeal, God's boundless passion to do what he has promised to do is the driving force behind the fulfillment of God's promises. God is absolutely determined to keep his word and accomplish his purpose. Now, as it is with the Father, so it is with the Son. And so it comes as no surprise that when we turn to the Gospels, we learn that the Lord Jesus Christ shares the zeal of his Father. Do you remember when Jesus visited the temple in Jerusalem in John chapter 2? John chapter 2, verses 14 to 17 say this, in the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And he decided to reflect philosophically on the state of affairs in front of him. Is that what it says? It's not what it says. It's not what it says. It says, and making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables, and he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Human beings often get upset and undertake aggressive action because they are consumed with zeal for their own ego or for their own selfish agenda. They didn't get their way and now they're throwing a temper tantrum or they're throwing punches or they're throwing objects across the room or they're hurling insults at the people who are standing in their way. But Jesus' zeal was profoundly different. Jesus was consumed with zeal for his father's house. He was consumed with zeal for his father's honor and name. He was consumed with zeal for the purity and integrity of the worship that ought to have taken place in his father's house. Jesus was outraged that his father's house had been turned into a place of commerce, that the place of prayer had been turned into a marketplace, that the place of sacrifice had been turned into a sales arena. And John chapter 2, verses 14 to 17, teaches us that it is possible to be outraged and undertake aggressive action and to be perfectly in the right while doing so. In fact, part of Jesus' righteousness is simply this. He was rightly consumed with zeal for his father's house, for his father's honor, and he didn't hide it. 
He wasn't privately committed to his father's honor, but publicly ashamed to admit it. Far from it. Jesus was not ashamed to be seen as a faithful son, loyal to his beloved father. And and if the truth is to be told, we must understand that part of our unrighteousness as sinful human beings is that all too often we are not consumed with zeal for our Father's house, for the Father's honor, for the Father's glory. When biblical worship in the church is replaced with cheap entertainment, shouldn't you be consumed with holy zeal for your Father's house? When biblical preaching in the church is replaced with worldly wisdom, shouldn't you be consumed with holy zeal for your Father's house? When biblical ministry in the church is replaced with gimmicks and manipulative techniques, shouldn't you be consumed with zeal for your father's house? When biblical holiness in the church is replaced with indifference to obedience and flagrant violations of God's law, shouldn't you be consumed with holy zeal for your father's house? Where are the courageous Christians who are willing to be publicly seen and willing to be publicly ridiculed because what they care most about is the purity and integrity of their father's house. And that matters far more to them than their own comfort and ease. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is zealous to fulfill all of his promises and all of his purposes, and our Lord Jesus Christ is zealous to uphold the honor and worth of his Father. And if we are to be a holy people rooted in the Lord and set apart for his purposes, then God's zeal must stir up our own hearts to be zealous for the Lord. And so that brings us to our third point. We must ponder godly zeal, holy zeal, the zeal that God's people ought to have. Now, is a great. Now, I want you to turn to Numbers chapter 25. And here's a great example of an ordinary person. I mean, Jesus is the Holy One, no flaw in him. But here is an ordinary person like us, a saint, but still sinful, uh, who nevertheless displayed extraordinary zeal for God. His name is Phinehas, the grandson of Aaron. In Numbers chapter 25, the children of Israel fell into vile sin. It says in verse 1, while Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor. Instead of remaining loyal to Yahweh and worshiping Him alone, and instead of preserving faithfulness to Yahweh by practicing sexual purity within the marriage covenant and by marrying within the covenant of Israel's faith community, the Israelites strayed far from God's boundaries. They threw purity to the wind. They shacked up with Moabite women. They worshiped Moabite gods. They celebrated the feast of false gods, and they forged a bond with the false god, Baal. The unfaithfulness that was already in their hearts broke forth into open rebellion, and how did the Lord respond? 
He responded with intense wrath, and he was determined to swiftly destroy the evildoers. And the destruction of the evildoers would satisfy his wrath and turn his wrath away from the people of Israel. Look at the middle of verse 3. It says, And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, Take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. And Moses said to the judges of Israel, Each of you kill those of his men who have yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. God will not be mocked or belittled, but he will meet rebellion with decisive judgment. Leaders, the chiefs, bear a greater measure of responsibility, and so they were to be executed in broad daylight. Meanwhile, as we will see in verses 8 and 9, the Lord had sent a plague among the people, and many Israelites died as a result. And as Matthew Henry points out in his commentary, the plague would not be taken away until the wicked leaders were executed. Now, at such a time as this, what should the Israelites be doing? They should be humbling themselves before the Lord and weeping before the Lord and confessing their sin and turning back to the Lord and seeking His mercy. And it seems like many of the Israelites were doing this very thing. But one Israelite man's action was totally out of sync with the solemnity of the moment. Instead of weeping with the rest of his fellow Israelites, this one Israelite man, and he was a prominent man, if you scan down to verse 14, his, he's named for us, Zimri, the son of Salu, chief of a father's a house belonging to the Simeonites. This, this prominent Israelite man strolled across the field with a Midianite woman and brought this foreign woman to his family. In this moment of severe judgment upon the nation, instead of bowing low in order to seek the Lord's mercy, this man was engaging in conduct that would only compound Israel's guilt. Israel had gotten in trouble because their men had fooled around with Moabite women and their gods, and now this lone Israelite man is rolling the dice with a Midianite woman. It was a foolish choice, and Aaron's grandson, Phinehas, was furious. And I want you to, before I read verses 6 to 13, I want you to catch the flow of thought, okay? In verse 3, the Lord was furious and takes swift action against the chiefs of the people. Now in verse 7, Phinehas is furious and takes swift action against the guilty Israelite man. So, look at verses 6 to 13. And behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel while they were weeping in the entrance of the tent of meeting. When Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, saw it, he rose and left the congregation and took a spear in his hand and went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced both of them, the man of Israel and the woman, through her belly. Thus the plague on the people of Israel was stopped. Nevertheless, those who died by the plague were 24,000. And the Lord said to Moses, 
Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel in that he was jealous with my jealousy among them so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore say, behold, I give to him my covenant of peace and it shall be to him and to his descendants after him the covenant of a perpetual priesthood because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the people of Israel. Now, in terms of this sermon, I want you to notice two phrases. He was jealous with my jealousy. He was jealous with the Lord's jealousy, and he was jealous for his God. Phinehas had a heart for God, just like Paul. Paul had divine jealousy for the holiness of the Corinthian church. Phinehas had divine jealousy for the holiness of the Israelite congregation. Phinehas's heart was shaped by his loyal devotion to the Lord. He loved what the Lord loved. He hated what the Lord hated. Phinehas didn't want to make a name for himself, wasn't pursuing his own glory. Instead, Phinehas wanted the Lord's name to be honored among the people. The priority in prayer that the Lord taught us to pray was obviously front and center in Phinehas's heart. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Phinehas, an imperfect but faithful priest, had holy zeal for the purity of God's covenant community. And he displayed his holy zeal through concrete action. Jesus, our perfect and great high priest, had holy zeal for the holiness of God's house and displayed his zeal through concrete action. Question, do you display holy zeal through concrete action? Have you learned to live life from God's perspective? Do you care about what God cares about? Do you love what God loves? Do you hate what God hates? Do you have a holy zeal for God's house, for God's church, for God's people, for God's image in mankind, for God's gospel, for God's truth, for God's righteousness? As Christians, we are not called to get stirred up about the things that are important to people. People are not the measure of all things. And people are frequently wide of the mark in their assessments and priorities. And so we shouldn't get provoked or inspired simply because other people say that we should. Instead, we are called to get stirred up about the things that are important to God. Now, in light of this, I want to give you three exhortations to try to encourage you to be passionately devoted to the things of God. First, you must anchor your zeal in God's Word. True zeal must accord with the knowledge of God. Drinking deeply of Scripture, knowing God's heart and mind as revealed in His Word. This is the only way to ensure that you have holy zeal. Just consider the attitude of the man who wrote Psalm 119. He hungers and thirsts for God's words, right? My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. Psalm 119, verse 20. And then in verse 131, I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments. And his delight in God's word 
gets translated into the way that he actually lives. As he says in verse 60, I hasten and do not delay to keep your commandments. And this faithful man's earnest devotion to God's words shapes the way that he relates to wickedness and to wicked people. He says in verse 128, therefore I love your commandments above gold, above fine gold. Therefore I consider all your precepts to be right. I hate every false way. And then in verse 163, he says, I hate and abhor falsehood, but I love your law. And you see, he doesn't meditate on Scripture merely for the sake of a little personal inspiration. You know, like a verse a day keeps the devil away. Instead, Scripture is the decisive lens through which he sees the entire world. Disobedient people break his heart. Verse 136, my eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. Disobedient people also provoke and even infuriate his righteous heart. He says in verse 53, hot indignation seizes me because of the wicked who forsake your law. And then in verse 158, he says, I look at the faithless with disgust because they do not keep your commands. And then in verse 139, he says, my zeal consumes me because my foes forget your words. Too many evangelicals have been trained in sentimental niceties, and they will never speak that way. But take your cue from God's Word. This, this faithful man is not passionate for himself. It's not about him. He's passionate for God, for God's law, and for God's honor. And when you make God's Word your treasure, it governs the way you see the world, it puts fire in your bones, and it makes you passionate about all the right things. Second, second exhortation. You must understand understand that Jesus died to make you zealous. Jesus graciously saved you in order to establish you in holy zeal as the Apostle Paul instructed Titus in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. For the grace of God has appeared. In fact, I encourage you to turn there. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Prior to redemption, we were characterized by ungodliness, disobedience, and worldly passions and pleasures. If we were zealous, we were zealous for all the wrong things, and our zeal was only an expression of our lawlessness. But Jesus gave himself as a sacrifice for sin in order to lift us out of that lawlessness and to make us his pure and holy people who are justified and transformed by his grace. Therefore, the zeal that stirs in the hearts of God's redeemed people is a pure and holy zeal. 
It is a zeal that results from the power of Christ's blood. It is a zeal that is shaped by God's mercy and grace. It is a zeal that runs along the path of self-control, uprightness, and godliness. And ultimately, it is a zeal that we experience because we belong to Christ and we are in fellowship with Him. We don't manufacture this zeal out of our own resources, and we don't manage this zeal by our own wisdom. Instead, we are being worked upon by Christ, by His grace, His Word, His Spirit, and thus Christ generates in us a holy zeal. But the question is, holy zeal to do what? And that brings me to the third exhortation. So third, you must express your holy zeal in service to others. Holy zeal is experienced in the heart, but it cannot remain in the heart. Holy zeal is not passion for its own sake, but passion to serve other people for the Lord's sake. And understand that most of the time, most of the time, holy zeal does not mean thrusting a sword through an immoral and idolatrous man, as Phineas did. However, it is important to understand that Phineas's action was indeed an act of gracious service to his fellow Israelites, for by his zealous action, he made atonement for the people of Israel. Phineas was a mediator of mercy. Most of the time, holy zeal doesn't mean turning over tables in a temple and kicking people out of the temple, as Jesus did. But Jesus' action was also a gracious action in that he was determined to preserve God's house as a place of prayer for the benefit of worshipers who need to draw near to the Father of mercy. Most of the time, most of the time, holy zeal simply means acting from the heart for the good of the person in front of you. True and holy zeal is motivated to do a world of good for other people for Jesus' sake. The passage I just read, verses 11 to 14, celebrates God's transforming grace in our lives, and it concludes by telling us that God's people are to be zealous for good works. And then in Titus chapter 3, verses 3 to 8, Paul celebrates God's transforming grace again. And at the end of verses 3 to 8, he says that God's people are to be characterized by devotion to good works. So to be zealous for good works or devoted to good works obviously means much more than doing occasional good works throughout the week. And some of you right now, if you're listening to this message, you might be tempted to think holy zeal means, I got, man, I, I need to go find some dramatic thing to do to prove my zeal. Um, no. Zealous devotion means that your whole life is taken up with good works, and these good works start at home. Read Titus chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. Read 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 1 to 16. Read Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22 to chapter 6, verse 4, where each family member ought to have a continual joyful inclination to die to self in order to help and serve their other family members all throughout the day. Radically devoted, zealous Christians, which I hope you are or will become. Radically devoted, zealous Christians don't start by signing up for some awesome ministry over there, away from the thick and thin of my everyday life. 
No. They start, radically devoted, zealous Christians start by laying down their lives and resources for their own family, for their extended family, for their everyday neighbors, for their co-workers, and of course for their church family. As the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, since you are zealous for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. 1 Corinthians 14 verse 12. If we display holy zeal through practical loving action in our immediate and everyday relationships, then our holy zeal will overflow wherever we go. As Paul says at the beginning of Titus chapter 3, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. I wonder how many new disciples we might make. I wonder how many doors of opportunity for sharing the gospel might open up if we had this kind of zeal for honorable, winsome, and gracious conduct at all times. Dear brothers and sisters, the call upon us is not to be zealous for sporadic, dramatic, and heroic moments, but rather to be zealous to do good unto others all the time in the Lord's name and for the Lord's sake. As Jesus himself taught us, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Matthew 5, 16. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would stir up within us and sustain within us and spread throughout our families and our church family and our community a holy zeal for your name, for your kingdom, for your will. Father, I pray that you would work through us a steady stream of gracious good works that would glorify your name and build your kingdom. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.